Hey everybody, this is Daniel Patrick, and this is episode number 28 of the Mandolins of Beer podcast, brought to you in part by my favorite website, The Mandolin Cafe. How is everybody doing? Hope you guys had a great week. Last week's episode with Andrew Marlin was great. This week, another great episode with Andrew Collins from Canada. Such a nice guy, and um, I want to just thank him and uh, and say hey to the guys in the band, if you guys are listening, and uh, thank him for rescheduling. I was a little sick there, and we had to bounce some things around to, to make it happen, but it was a, it was a great conversation. Um, at the very end of this episode, uh, there is a world premiere single, uh, Caleb Edwards, who is a guest on one of the early episodes of the Mandolins of Beer podcast. He's a great guy and a great player. He is putting out a solo album, and his brand new single comes out on Friday, but he gave us a preview of it to play a preview gave us the whole the whole thing to uh to play here on the podcast you're gonna love it it's a great tune so uh stay tuned for that at the very end and once again i just want to thank everybody who's listening um thank you to everyone who subscribed if you haven't done so yet if you want to support the podcast just hit subscribe and leave a uh leave a review and a rating that stuff is great this last week cracked the top 10 of the i uh, the itunes music podcast so that was incredible and it's from people subscribing and leaving reviews and ratings and, and of course, listens. So thank you so much for that. Uh, you can also support the podcast. I've got two Patreon levels. One is if you just want to want to buy me a beer, you can go to the uh, Patreon page, Mandolins and Beer, and um, you can do the $4 a month Patreon, or you can do the $8 a month, which gives you video and tabs. And last week's was a really popular one. It was the five shapes that Andrew Marlin talked about uh, for double stops that really helped him with his playing. So I did a video lesson and I tabbed it out in all 12 keys. So that is available. And this week, actually, I am going to use Andrew Collins, one of his suggestions, not his 10 minute a day one, but that might be another video. Um, and as he was talking about in jazz school, how he would learn the pentatonic shapes or different scale shapes, pentatonic actually in this instance. And then that scale in G is another scale in E. And so there's five different ways you can break down the pentatonic scale, and I will do that so you can play it in different positions. I will do that on the Patreon page this, uh, this week. So thank you so much for listening. You can always go to mandolinsandbeer.com and buy some merch. I've got a brand-new trucker-style hat coming in and restocks on the trucker hats coming up as well. So thanks a lot, y'all. Cheers. Don't forget to follow the Spotify playlist, which is updated every Wednesday. And uh, here's Andrew Collins. All right, now I'd like to welcome to the podcast, Mr. Andrew Collins. Andrew, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Dan. How are you? Doing great. Uh, you are on a day off in Vancouver. That's right. Yeah, how's the tour going? That's You have... Um, the tour... Go ahead, yeah. Oh, yeah, the tour is going great. I, I, I jumped the gun. Please ask the question. Oh, yeah, no worries. I was going to say, um, I had gotten a little, little sick there. And during what the initial interview time and we had to reschedule it and I was looking at your tour dates. I'm like, all right, let me just try to find his day off here on this run of dates. I'm like, oh, geez, <laughs> he, he appears to have no days off. And like it seemed like you were playing. Oh, was it 10 gigs in a row or 10 dates, 10, 10 gigs in 11 days? Yeah, we, we like to keep things. If we're on the road, we may as well be busy as possible. So it is rare that we have days off when we're on the road. However, today is a uh, fortuitous day off which like i said is rare so we're gonna spend the day practicing and rehearsing new material for our next recording which is gonna happen in about a month that's so great and this is why 
your recordings are so good. Here's a guy who's just played all these dates in a row with guys and you, you've spent all your time together. You've been playing a bunch and you're spending your day off rehearsing. <laughs> you know what I yeah. mean? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, we've now been playing. We figured out that as, it was a slow start, like a slow burn at first. But we've been playing now for seven and a half years together. And uh, yeah, you you just get so used to uh, making decisions together and like being around each other so much that it's not, you're not, at least for us, we're not like rushing to get away from each other. We're just too used to each other. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Oh man, that's great. And um, what kind of uh, venues have you been doing on this run? Um, it has been everything from there will be a house concert tomorrow night up to playing town halls. We just played this great hall in Vancouver called uh, St. James hall, which is a really beautiful and uh, great acoustics. And it's kind of, we were playing this boat club um, called the rogue, which is sort of an institution here in Vancouver. And uh, we're going to be up in Whistler in a couple of days playing another beautiful hall, the Millennium Center. So mostly small performing arts centers and, and uh, town hall sort of shows. Yeah, that's and, great. Um, but yeah, we, we fill them in with what we can. Sure, sure. And, um, and you've had, and you, if, if people can't pick up the accent or aren't familiar with you, you are from Canada. And um, that's, quite, that's right. <laughs> quite a uh, impressive list of nominations and awards for your previous work, which is, you know, it, it's amazing. And the Junos are essentially, and I'm not sure if I'm right in saying this, but they're basically kind of like the Canadian Grammy Award. Yeah, that's that's exactly correct. Um, yeah, I've picked up a bunch of nominations on that one. Always a bridesmaid, never a bride so far. <laughs> well, you're in good company with people who've been on this podcast. I had a few Grammy people who uh, didn't come away with the Grammy this year, too. So I think just just being the bridesmaid in that situation is is a huge honor. Yeah, definitely. And, and particularly for playing, uh, you know, this new acoustic music that's such a personal exploration it's real honor to get recognized for doing the thing that you're really passionate about not just you know we're not putting out music that is devised to be commercial it's really our passion so yeah we, we feel very lucky yeah that's great well congrats on all that success congrats also Thanks. on being a new father thank you very much you're welcome yeah that's second time around uh and yeah we got a baby boy and he's doing great and he's home with his mother right now while I'm on the road. This is the first, the first tour of any length that I've gone since he was born. He's just over two months old. So, uh, you know, thanks to my wife for holding down the fort while I'm gone. <laughs> yes. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. And this is actually, <clears throat> this run, the, the tour is a 10 day tour, but I actually am going to interior BC to Kelowna when this is done to record a band in BC for another week. So I'll be gone for two and a half weeks, which, you know, I, it gets harder to do when you have kids. Oh, for sure. And, and while you're talking, while you're in Vancouver currently, you were telling me a John Reichman story. I'm like, Oh, wait, wait, let's save it for the podcast. <laughs> this is a, so uh, yeah, you've, you've met John Reichman, obviously we, we talked about.
Yes. Yeah, we've, I've met him, I mean, many times. I've seen him lots over the years. And, and um, when I first started playing mandolin, like, I, I got the bug wanting to play an instrument, and mandolin specifically, when I was in my late teens, 18 or 19 years old. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I have a close friend whose name is Chris Cool, who uh, I've played in uh, Straighthead Bluegrass Band with the Foggy Hogtown Boys, and he is a member of a really great band called Lonesome A String Band. Anyhow, he was playing banjo when we were in high school together, and he introduced me to bluegrass music. And the very first time I went to a festival with him where he was jamming with all his friends, I really caught the bug. I wanted to play mandolin really badly. But I saw how much he practiced. I just didn't think that I would put the work in to get where would be gratifying. Mm-hmm. So it kind of kept me from playing mandolin for <laughs> a long time, actually. And um, when I was 23, I was living in Whistler, you know, as a ski bum. I lived out there for a few years and um, summer came and I, I had a couple of friends that were like hippie jammers just sort of getting started with bluegrass. And I actually saw it. David Grisman quintet down in Bellingham, Washington. And it was the straw that broke the camel's back. The next day I went and bought a mandolin and started practicing on my own. And a couple of friends in Vancouver were like, oh, you should take some lessons from John Reichman. And I didn't actually even know who John Reichman was at the time, though I had some albums with him on it because I was really into the Tony Rice unit and, and all sorts of stuff. And took some lessons from him. And he, uh, he, you know, taught me the very basic techniques. I mean, I'm sure I could have gotten a lot of what I got from him from anyone because I could, I wasn't at a place to really tap into what he really had to offer, but he gave me this great foundation and he was super sweet guy, took pity on this, you know, poor 23 year old and gave me some free lessons in exchange for selling CDs at his show. He made it really accessible and, He's that really is. generous in that way. And yeah, over the years, we've taught at bluegrass camps together, and I see him fairly often when we're out west. Or Yeah, so it's it's been, uh, he was very generous, and I appreciate what I got out of that. That is so cool. That is so great, selling CDs at the show for lessons. <clears throat> I think uh, <laughs> that's, a, that's an amazing trade. <laughs> yeah, yeah, really thoughtful of him. So before, like, David Grisman, was there, were there certain albums also that were kind of, or was there an album after seeing Grisman that you just were like, all right, I'm going to start working on this stuff, and this is the album that's driving me crazy right now that I've just got to learn how to play it? Well, I've definitely gone through lots of them. <clears throat> when I first, so, so when I first started listening to Bluegrass, I was really into the banjo. I loved John Hartford, and, you know, I was listening to some hippie uh hippie psychedelic country music as well and um and got into like uh olden in the way I thought I, I hadn't really noticed what the mandolin was doing yet. And I actually thought that I hated the mandolin at first. <laughs> and then I heard the, I heard the first Grisman quintet album and instantly, like in the first minute, it became 
the mandolin became my favorite instrument. And I, it was really strange experience hearing that album because even though I'd never heard it before, it sounded really familiar. And I, and it just kind of, I became totally captivated by the mandolin and it was still a good four or five years before I finally broke down and got a mandolin. And then, you know, I, I went back and I just rediscovered what the mandolin was doing and like even got like the more raw stuff, mandolin playing like Bill Monroe and, and Bill Napier. Cause I, I was a huge Stanley brothers fan. And, uh, but also discovered Sam Bush very quickly, you know, had all these John Hartford albums. So I already had Sam Bush and, and so Sam Bush, Mike Marshall. Those were the the three guys when I first started playing mandolin that that just blew me away. Mm-hmm. And um, and then you know Thiele came along and he <laughs> then that album Stealing Second was right at the time when I started playing mandolin and so I devoured that album and started working on as many tunes. I learned most of that album at the time and some of the tunes were. Like the out, like the tune stealing second. It was years before I was going to be able to play that up to speed but (laughs) i i just i i loved working on it so i started playing all these tunes that were like way above my pay grade but they were these stepping stones to elevate my my level you know and and so i i have the tenacity to to get there sort of thing and then and then the other really impactful album for me was matt flinner's first album writing on that album it, it's 
it's one of my favorite new acoustic albums. Um, everyone's playing on that album. Like it's actually one of my favorite David Greer albums too. Just what he plays on out of view from here. It just blows me away. So listen to that a ton, learned all those tunes and, and then, you know, started writing tunes myself that if I hear some of the early ones, they, they really sound like, the tunes that they were inspired by <laughs> sure. took a while to get further away from the tunes that I was influenced by. <laughs> when, um, when re-listening to Groove here this this past week and a half, the first thing I thought of was like, I wonder if he's a Matt Flinner fan because I'm a huge Matt Flinner fan, and um, you you definitely have a little bit of Matt Flinner in your playing, it, and and I mean that as a huge compliment, obviously, because I look at Matt Flinner. I, just, I take it that way. Yeah, good, good. Because <laughs> he is like the uh, the Mount Rushmore of players for me, for sure. His his face is on there. It's everything he's done has just been like so great. I think, and just a master of writing and taste and tone. Yeah, and 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 humor too. Like humor is a really important thing to me and and it comes out in his writing it definitely comes out in his personality as well like he's, it's, yeah and yes he has been a huge influence on he's definitely been a big influence on my composing for sure you touch on a really interesting thing earlier that i can definitely relate to especially with as a person who worked on a lot of that stealing second album as well and being like, you know, initially like, as ah, kid wrote this, I'll start here. And then you're like, oh, man, <laughs> this is no normal kid, <laughs> you know, and, uh, <laughs> you know, but then but then sitting down and realizing you're not gonna be able to play that right away. And you had that tenacity. What is what is something that you recommend as far as people when they're working on stuff? And obviously frustration is part of it. And how do you break that wall down? Well, I, and I, I would say as a mandolin, as a mandolinist, one of my greatest strengths is problem solving and this like tunnel vision tenacity mm-hmm. that, um, you know, I, the way, what I really try to recommend to people uh, that are learning is you really need to work on your weaknesses and <clears throat> looking for your biggest weaknesses isn't an easy thing for people to face. However, when you're working on your, like your absolute biggest weaknesses, you're always bringing your level up from the bottom. So you're not just working on the things that you're good at, which a lot of people like to do. And they, they don't always want to work on their biggest weaknesses because it exposes, you know, the, the suck factor. (laughs) Um, And so when I'm, when I'm teaching, I always start off with, this diatribe about embracing sucking you cannot get better at something without being bad at it and a lot of people want to avoid those feelings of sucking but if you can turn the the mentality around and be focusing on your biggest weaknesses then you'll see that you can improve on those weaknesses and it becomes a more inspirational experience to look for those weaknesses. It takes some time to get there. So the one thing is, yes, working really hard on your weaknesses. But then the other thing is, if you only worked on your weaknesses, you're going to get burnt out and lose interest because it isn't always fun to be working on the things that you suck the most at. So (laughs) (laughs) I, I really think it's important to 
balance trying to figure out ways to keep yourself inspired. So that might be taking lessons from a hero, or it might be just working on the, the tunes that you really, really love that might not be isolating your big, biggest weaknesses so that you've got some reward to working hard on these, on the, the challenging things, but you got to keep it fun as well. Otherwise you, you can't just discipline yourself into working hard at something. It has to come from uh, a place of excitement too. Otherwise you just will not keep it up. So yeah, it, what that, what that thing is, that's going to keep you excited is a, personal things you so you have to just kind of look for it it might be going to bluegrass camps it might be going to see shows it might be just lifting tunes that you really love and those are all all of them are great inspirational things wherever you find your inspiration you need to feed that to keep yourself compelled to practice i think yeah and this is this is like the most amazing time i think to be working on an instrument especially a mandolin i mean and so if you have a favorite player there's so many people out there that you can take a private skype lesson with and it's not just do it <laughs> yeah totally and and there's so many like compared to when i first started playing mandolin it there's so many resources now that just didn't exist then you know and um it's it's a good time for that and you have access to all this music all the time. You know, I have a playlist yeah. that I put together for this at every episode that I put on Spotify. And it's like hundreds of songs that you can just go and listen to. You know what I mean? And and listen to be like, wow, who's this guy they're talking about? And you can just discover this whole new world of stuff that's at your fingertips, which is makes it tough yeah. sometimes for artists. And I, I mean, really, for me, in, like online or in-store record sales, we're never a big thing for me. I mean, particularly sure. with the kind of music we're playing, it's it's always been uh, the touring and offstage sales that most, like all of, that's how we get records in people's hands generally, for like has been my experience in the last 23 years. It's still, I mean, I'm not David Grisman, so <laughs> maybe, well, I know it's a different story for him, but it has never been a, a significant thing, the in-store sales thing. So, I mean, maybe that'd, it'd be a nice thing if that weren't the case, but it's just getting out there and playing for people and getting out and meeting people is the way it's always been for me. And and I haven't and I haven't built any other skills, so it's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, that's great! So the first time I heard you was actually on the uh, Mandolin Cafe, and when it was your album, Little Widgets. Might have even about oh, a long time ago. Yeah, yeah, a real long time ago. That was the first time I'd heard of you, and I had bought that album. And a, a right away, I was like, "Wow, this guy is coming from a different place." And, and that's what I really, really loved about it. What was what was it like to put that first album together from going from like listening to Bluegrass, and then obviously listening to Thiele and Flinner, and then you're like, "Okay, I want to put out an album." Well, I had so that was my first solo project but i'd already 
been playing in this band um, called Creaking Tree String Quartet, which was all about creating new acoustic music. And um, not everyone in that band was coming from like knowing new acoustic music, but they're all really great musicians and all could play bluegrass and, and various other styles to varying degrees. And, um, and I also did this duet album sort of in preparation for little widgets with a young guy named Mark Roy, who is an amazing flat picker. kind of did a home recording um, with a, a friend of mine named Scott Rogers from Toronto who um, had a ho- small home studio. We just did a duo album, all original material, just about um, as sort of like a stepping stone before I went for doing my first like full solo album. And um, and so when I was going to Little Widgets, I, I was very fortunate to get some Canada Council grant money to help fund it. And, um, so I did, there was a full studio project and I spent, you know, a few years writing tunes to get prepared for it. And, and it was, I'm still very proud of that work. It was, you know, it really captured me, um, at a time when you're like just so excited and like this youthful impetuousness (laughs) that comes when you, when you're like, still pretty new to something, but like I've been playing probably five or six years at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you know, relatively new to, to playing still. And I was still practicing like anywhere from five to eight hours a day and doing everything I could to, to keep the mandolin. So it, there's a, a fire in there that, that, uh, really, I, you know, I, I still think I'm, trying to produce good work but there isn't this like youthful impetuousness in my playing that there was at that time so i've that i've got a soft spot for that album um for that reason well and it's a really good album <laughs> it's a, well, that, well, that also helps <laughs> kind of great players on it that's that's a great uh example of how good the toronto acoustic scene is there are a lot of like all my community are playing on that album. It's not just like a band of three or four guys. It's, it's a little bit bigger. I kind of cherry picked the people that I wanted to play on different tunes. And, um, it's, you really get a sense of how good the acoustic scene was. And, you know, it's only that much better in Toronto now. It's really grown. Did you go to school for music? I did a couple of times. In fact, no um, a year no. after I started playing, I went to South Plains college for a year mm-hmm. and studied with Joe Carr Oh, and cool! Yeah. Had the bluegrass program there. Yeah. Did you happen to bump into Kim Warner? I think Kim Warner went there as well from the green cards. No, and... he wasn't there when I, when I was there. Um, I think I was there a little earlier than that. Gotcha. Uh, but 
it was a really, I, I got, it was an incredible experience. I got so much out of that, that wasn't what I had expected to get from it. Mm-hmm. Um, mainly I got a, a lot of playing experience. And when you're, you know, when you're really early in your playing, you think every note matters so much. If you make a mistake, you, you get down on yourself and you, you know, you make a face and you like the stage fright, you think that everyone's catching every, every moment. And the great thing about Southlands is they would take us out and we'd play to like old folks homes and stuff where the audience is not super discerning. And you start to realize that, that, you know, if you make a mistake and you don't make a face, no one notices. And so it kind of got this experience that made me comfortable on stage, but it really made me hungry, hungrier to learn theory and to dig deeper into jazz music. So I, I came back to Toronto and went to jazz school for a couple of years, uh, a school called Humber College, which has produced a lot of a lot of great um, bluegrass players now as well. But um, it's a really great jazz program, and and I was the first mandolin player to. I kind of I was playing an electric five string in the guitar program, so taking everything they're teaching guitarists and adapting it to the electric five string and. Um, it yeah, it kicked my butt. It was great. It was a really inspiring experience. So I've gone to post secondary school twice and graduated from nothing. <laughs> <laughs> well, it doesn't really matter because the, the, uh, graduating or not, you're doing it. You know what I mean? Like it comes through. Yeah, play as yeah. Well. And I got, and I really got what I was hoping to get out of the experience. I, I just wanted knowledge, so I wasn't taking electives. I was just just taking the music courses. Sure. What were some of the jazz guys that you uh, that you were loving? Because you definitely have a jazz influence um, that comes through in your recordings as well. Yeah, I mean, I was definitely listening to a lot of jazz. But, I, I, you know, it's interesting. With bluegrass music and new acoustic music, I devoured the repertoire. I lifted solos. I lifted tunes from everyone, like all these Mike Marshall tunes, Sam Bush solos, like all over the map. Anything that... Uh, I mean, at the very beginning, I was lifting a lot of Grisman and um, and sounding like everything I played sounded like a Grisman quote. And then I got into Feely and, and started lifting, you know, all his stuff and started, you know, trying to sound like Feely. And then I, I you know, I, I started meeting all these like super young mandolinists that were also into Feely and they really did sound like Feely and and it really like jazz school came at the right time because I started to discover that if I just only lift from the heroes and particularly like when I was really into Feely, if I'm only trying to sound like Feely, then I'm going to sound more and more like, like a, a lesser facsimile of Feely. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm going to sound a lot like all these young mandolin players that are trying to sound like Feely as well. So jazz school came at a time where, the work they were giving us was much more conceptual practicing and it kind of derailed me from looking to other musicians uh, to try and sound like to, for my practice and for building on my vocabulary. And it started to become a more introverted looking inward and, and having these conceptual ideas to practice that were were less connected to specific players. So around that time, I kind of stopped lifting 
solos and tunes and started practicing more like, I guess, you know, in jazz school, they'd give you all these devices to practice, like, you know, taking a pentatonic pattern and moving that. It's just an example. You can get caught up in, is it a G6 chord or an E minor nine chord? <laughs> right. Or you can, or you can recognize, oh, this is functioning as a couple of ways and, and have that same thing that you already know can now be used in a couple situations. And so theory really unlocked that for me. Um, and, and then the other thing that you were asking about is, um, I guess how, uh, how my, how, you know, in some of my compositions, things take left-hand turns that are unexpected and, and, you know, hopefully they're, pleasing experiences oh, and yeah, no they're absolutely I, I, I feel like uh for me i i grew up the first band that i really listened to that was not just being played on the radio that i started seeking out on my own was pink floyd oh, right. and i i think their music with all these dramatic transitions and and unexpected turns i think that had a big impact on me so i really like music i like jokes and i like punchlines in music so i like for things to take left-hand turns but i also i always want it to be like a surprise but then after it occurs it's like oh yeah that makes total sense because it was leading there even though the the person didn't know where it was leading so i i definitely find that i try to have a lot of that in my music because uh you know, listening to just instrumental music for the average person, I can do it all day. But for the average person, they're not always used to that. So you're trying to create these little events that surprise them and pull them in is is my goal. At least, right, anyway. right. Absolutely. Well, yeah, I think I think you're accomplishing it <laughs> for sure, man. And actually, that brings us to, to, to your two newest releases, which were 2018 Tongue and Groove. As you say, Pink Floyd, you actually do a Pink Floyd song on the on the Groove album. It goes into it, but it merges into another tune. Yes. Yeah. So we uh, did an adaptation of Goodbye Blue Sky with mandocello, mandolin, and bass. And um, Mike had taught me this tune, Ship in the Clouds. Mike is one of my bandmates. Um, and he taught me Ship in the Clouds that I guess he, he may have got it from even from David Benedict, who got it from the Scott Nygaard album which uh, um, Dreamers Waltz, which is one of the albums that I listen to a ton as well. Yeah, so we we brought the two tunes together for 
some reason. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, and turn goodbye, blue sky, <clears throat> or sorry, <clears throat> turn ship in the clouds into like sort of it's kind of an old timey rendition, but it's also we take solos on it and play it really fast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, bluegrass style. As bluegrassy as Mandocello can get. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You have a great – how long did it take you to transition? You, um, your Mandocello playing um, and is just uh, so fluid as well. And that's a huge stretch. Even octave mandolin, like, that. that's a – Yeah, the Mandocello is a beast for sure. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, it's taken a lot of time. Like, on mandolin, you see players – that can get away without using their pinky at all, almost. But on the mandocello, just to play a major third, like that interval on one string, or even a minor third, you need to use your pinky. So there's a lot of like index finger and pinky action going on on the mandocello that you just have to get over the stretching and or there or figure out clever fingerings, which you know sometimes for melodies I'll. I'll try and figure out, okay, how can I jump from here to here? Sometimes using like, you know, get it, grabbing an open string to, to give me a fingering break to jump, make a leap or something that I learned from Feely early on when I started lifting his stuff. And I'm so grateful that I did this, like lifted all these tunes is I started to discover that Feely has these ways of just in mid stream of eighth notes, just do these shift jumps that um, that as a dogmatic rule, I thought you don't do. And then <laughs> I, I see, oh, Thiele's doing it. It's like, oh, right. You just have to jump your hands. <laughs> <laughs> and um, that really opened up a lot of doors. So the mandocello, um, the, I started trying to apply some of these types of shifts on the mandocello, which means things aren't you don't always have to stretch as much if you're prepared to make quick leaps diagonally across the strings and stuff and there's this great this really incredible mandolinist i mean he plays everything uh this musician named kevin bright from canada uh his name isn't kevin bright from canada his name is kevin bright and he is from canada and um for all the mandolin lovers out there you really got to check this guy out because he's he is not bluegrassy really at all, but he is one of the best mandolinists and mando family players out there. really quirky and his stuff is really outside the box he's kind of coming from a jazz kind of coming from a rock coming kind of coming from a folk school but every rule that that bluegrassers come to the mandolin with like with pick strokes and stuff like that he he throws out every rule 
And I was fortunate enough about five, six years ago to be, to play with him and learn a bunch of his music. He did a couple mandolin albums. Um, and it opened up again, these new doors, much like the Thiele's shifting methods of pick strokes and stuff that, that, you know, I, I just learned that you don't do. And then you hear this player doing it and it creates all these like really incredible sounds that you never hear other mandolin players do. And, and um, I highly recommend checking him out. Awesome. What's a, What's an example of one of those unorthodox sort of things that you've kind of picked up and, and, and ran with? Uh, well, he does his pick strokes. Like he can play eighth notes, alternating pick strokes, but he does all this rhythmic stuff that, he might do double ups, these sweep sort of things like these. He like, so he kind of comes from a jazz school Mm -hmm. and he showed me some stuff that he does. So like a horn player won't play every eighth note in a line to sound even, right. It might be where like only a few of the notes are actually, played out and the rest are kind of suggestion. Sure. Yeah. And he showed me, and he showed me these ways. I, I mean, I've, I've only incorporated this in small bits cause it's really like a different box to, to work out of. Sure. Um, where he does a lot of that, where he'll like be doing these like ghost pick strokes within a phrase that it, it, when you first hear him, you might think that he's not a clean player. But then when you hear him playing in context, it's like, oh, no, he's actually like create, using these grace notes as like phrasing and articulation uh, um, as, as tools, tools for articulation. Yeah. And, and it's it's really amazing. You, you kind of have to check him out. To, I'm 100 percent going to check know him out. what I'm saying. Yeah. Also, yeah. link him on this uh, the description so people. Hopefully, if they want to check them out, go to the website, and I'll have a link to it, too. Is That's awesome, man. I can't wait to listen to it. <laughs> yeah, I, I highly recommend it. It is so far from from the bluegrass, new acoustic world, but it is so – it's such a parallel thing yeah. as well. Man, great. So going back to Tongue and Groove here, a great idea. Yeah, an album, <laughs> a tongue, an album with vocal tracks called Tongue and an instrumental album called Groove at the same time. So, um, yeah, yeah. What was the, how'd you come up with that concept? That's really unique. So most of my music, uh, like my, my solo albums and the trio albums, the majority of of it has been instrumental. Mm -hmm. So our, at our shows, we always do, you know, three or four songs within a set. Um, and you know, at the CD table, people would always come up, oh, which album has that song on it? You know, Roger Miller song or whatever. And, and you know, we were just saying, uh, we actually haven't recorded those. So when, after our second album, which was also kind of an instrumental concept album, um, and it was good, we, I wanted to do something that, you know, that had vocals. I'd had this list of songs that I'd, had ideas for readapting and for that came from all kinds of influences. So not just coming from the bluegrass world. And in fact, there aren't that many bluegrass songs on tongue. Um, 
And and so the original idea was just to do a vocal album with all these songs and readapt them for the trio. Well, I'm just a gigolo, and everywhere I go, people know the part I'm playing. I'm paid for every dance, selling each romance. Ooh, heart betraying. There will come a day when youth will pass away. What'll I do? And what would they say about And um But as the session started approaching, I was like, oh well, we're still kind of known as an instrumental group, so why don't we just do an instrumental album while we're doing this other album? We're all gonna be in the studio. <laughs> so that's that's really how the idea came about and and uh it took a little time to come up with the name and I actually have to credit my, my agent manager with the name. Originally I was working on something like song and dance were the two albums. And, and, uh, she came, she suggested, what about tongue and groove? And as soon as she said, it's like, Oh yeah, that's, that's the name for this. <laughs> oh man. That's great. And yeah. So, so it's just like a compilation of my, these gems of songs that I've always had on a list that I'd like to do someday. And, um, and then I got to writing a bunch of instrumental stuff for, for groove to, you know, fill out an album there as well. And, uh, yeah, we're pretty happy with how it came out despite what everyone says doing two albums at once is twice the work. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, for compositionally wise, it, it, from your from your recordings especially i guess maybe even on groove because it's like the newest one at this point um what is one of the songs off the albums that you felt so far really um captures what you the things you've been working at uh in all this time that you're like all right this is this is where i'm headed and this is the best representation of what i was going for at that point oh that's so hard that's so hard to say i i there i could I definitely know the ones that people respond to the most. And in- interestingly, one of the ones that people respond to the most is one that is actually kind of influenced by Kevin Bright and is had, we did not rehearse. It, it's the Grumpus, the mandocello team that I wrote. just come up with this like really grumpy sounding melody to capture how my daughter, my daughter, who's very good natured, you know, every, every child has their moments where they're, they're not their happiest. And I wanted to capture her being really grumpy um, (laughs) in a tune. And so I wrote this like really simple melody on the mando cello that the plan was, I, I wanted it to be really jangly and edgy. So, we didn't rehearse it at all. And I just showed them how the melody works. So they had a way, you know, so Mike knew the harmony for the melody and, and James knew what was going to happen, but I wanted the, 
solos to be totally improvised and a surprise in the moment. So we did like throughout the session, we just kind of would do a take or two of the Grumpus. And it, and I, I really like that one because it is the furthest, it is the most simple melody I've ever written and people really react to it, but it doesn't sound bluegrassy at all. Mike is such a great jazz player um, on mandolin and guitar. And, and when you put him in these like minor grumpy jazz setting i mean any jazz setting he really really shines and as does james i should mention the guys in the trio are mike mezzatesta and james mclaney uh they put a ton of hard work into this music and you know we're we're brothers of the string (laughs) (laughs) nice and also it kind of picks up a little bit of that sense of humor a little bit at first like when you hear it you know, it kind of like it is kind of got that grumpy sound, but at the same time, when it comes on, you're like, "Oh, this is so cool!" Like it's just clever, good, good, good stuff. Yeah. Well, thanks. Yeah, absolutely. Did um, and the tones are great too. Did you guys record? Did you track live? Yes, we were we tracked it all live um, in my studio, and um, yeah, everything was live off the floor with isolation. So we were baffled off from each other. So I could, you know, not have a lot of mandolin bleeding in the guitar or whatever, but, um, yeah, I, I've recorded all of our albums so far. And, um, however, for this next album, I'm, I'm actually for the first time in 15 years handing over the production reins to, a very good friend of mine who actually was the guy that recorded little widgets. Oh, um, cool. His name's David Travers, David Travers Smith. And he has been my production recording mentor over the years. And, um, he's in my opinion, Canada's best acoustic engineer. And, um, and yeah, so as a way to get, make this next album that we're doing be a little different, I'm going to work with, with David on this, which was really exciting to not have to, to get to record an an album with the trio where I actually can just think about playing and not think about, about all these other details, which I like doing as well, but I I really want to try and figure out a way to make the next album different from the last. And, and that's just how we're doing it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, in like this, this is kind of nerdy stuff, but since you do the recording when, um, um, I mean, the sounds are so good the mandolin tones and everything, how do you capture the mandolin tones in the studio? Like Mike set up and mics that you use. Cause it's, it's so natural sounding. I mean, it sounds like you could oh. be playing right in front of me. Thanks. Um, I do a lot of, so on particularly on stringed instruments that are being plucked, mm-hmm. um, I do a lot of stereo imaging. Oh, cool. So um, for the mandolin, I'll use what a lot of, you know, a lot of the acoustic guys swear by, which is a pair of KM84s. So the vintage version of the Neumann small diaphragm mic. Yeah. And I'll use uh, a left and right channel that um, really creates a stereo image. And actually... I also usually use a central microphone that I can bring up in the in the blend if I want to have a more 
stable mono-esque signal. Uh-huh. And so, and what I use for that is an old vintage Neumann KM53 um, on on my mandolin. Anyway, that's usually the case. And so, and these are actually techniques that I learned from David. We're really trying to create this three-dimensional image that if, for instance, if I want to, um, if the mandolin is playing rhythm and backup, I'll actually collapse that stereo image a little bit so it feels like it's moving away and and pan it off to the side a little bit more. But when it's time for the mandolin solo or whatever instrument I'm playing at the moment, I'll, you know, automate the panning a little more central and actually open up the stereo image, which makes it feel like the mandolin is coming forward in the mix. And that's, I, I really try to make things feel natural. Uh, and yeah, I'm glad you feel that way. <laughs> and something that's really common in for engineers that are recording rock music is they don't always know how what the difference of recording acoustic music is. And and something I learned from David way back when I first started working with him was that, you know, some engineers think you, if you're recording the mandolin, this is where you put the microphone, or, you know, below the ethyl or whatever. And they have these dogmatic approaches to mic placement. And when you move a microphone around, it really changes the, sound of the instrument and and what frequencies are being captured and basically it's like eqing the instrument so something i learned from david right at the beginning is is getting my mic placement by soloing the mic that i'm placing through good headphones that i trust and that i know capture all the bottom end and high end so i can translate what the mic position is doing and basically EQ the mic, the instrument with mic placement and try and get the best tone from being really meticulous about where the microphones go so that, um, yeah, so that you get it sounding like the instrument and, and get a more realistic view. Like if you just stick the microphone anywhere, you you never know what you're getting. There's a hole here. That's got to sound good, right? Uh, yeah exactly (laughs) and and yeah if you just stick the microphone in front of the the sound hole of the guitar you're going to get nothing but bottom end booms exactly really and if you move it just a couple inches like sometimes you might notice that a frequency is popping out on an instrument when you're recording it and and just moving the microphone an inch or two can mitigate that and you can really carve out the tone before you've used any EQ or any compression or, or anything just by where the microphones go. So I'm really meticulous about that. Sounds great. That's why I was picking your brain about, I'm like, I got to ask him about his recording stuff because it just sounds so huh. natural. And it's, it's such a tough thing for, for, I think people to get when they're, when they're recording a project, you know, and then that's, they realize that there's actually more than just putting one microphone up and then just recording. It's like, you got to move, you got to move things. You got to, it's take a few minutes here or hours <laughs> to, yeah, to find where it yeah. sounds good. But it's tough to do, I suppose, too, when you're on a budget and you're already going into a studio and like, oh, man, this is expensive. And, you know, you're just going to trust whatever this guy says. You don't want to spend any extra time. <laughs> yeah. And it's really you you need to trust the person that you're working with, for sure. And, and that because 
ultimately most important in the studio is having, you know, getting a performance that is, you know, that, that feels good. And, uh, yeah. So you need to really be able to trust the person you're working with. Cause if you don't, then all that mistrust and second guessing comes into the playing and the, the whole vibe. And, and, you know, it's, it's hard enough emotionally, particularly early on in recording, uh, like hearing yourself back for the first time. It's, <laughs> it's hard enough emotionally to, to, you know, hear yourself under the microscope. You don't want to add to that by then having these weird vibes with the person that you're working with. So, <laughs> right. you know, sometimes it's worth spending a little bit more money just to have the experience be a positive one because you're going to go through a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's uh, that's an understatement. <laughs> yeah. So we're talking gear. Let's talk about your mandolin gear. You have some pretty, uh, some pretty great instruments. It looks like. Yes. I'm, I'm very lucky to have the, the fleet, the small fleet of instruments that I have, I have, I mean, first and foremost, I'm playing um, a Haydn mandolin, which is the third Haydn that I've had. Wow. Um, my first Haydn, I got in there way back when I first started playing. It was my, it was my second good mandolin. My first good mandolin was a flatiron, but um, it was at a time when, I finally discovered what the difference between like a flat iron and a Gilchrist is. <laughs> and I was like, Oh, I need to, I need to get something like I, or I really want to get something that is in that league. And, um, even then Gilchrist were on the more affordable side, but, um, I had Michael had, he lives in British Columbia and he had done some setup work on my first mandolin. And I, before I could really tell the difference, um, I picked up a couple of his mandolins that were, were newly built, and um, I had an inkling that there's something different about it, but I didn't know for sure what that was yet. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I kind of took a chance and ordered one of his mandolins. At the time, they were like 6000 which is... Uh, dramatically more affordable than they are now. <laughs> yeah, and still, I, I a, had to. That's a great deal. <laughs> and still, I borrowed money and had to. You know, it took me a couple of years to pay it off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, and it was really, really. It was a fantastic mandolin. I loved it. And it it was a Sitka spruce top mandolin. And right around that time, Feely was playing that Dudenbostel, and I and which was I knew an Engelman top mandolin, and I. I got kind of curious about that and I actually met Fletcher Brock who was building exclusively in Engelman at the time. And, uh, I talked to Michael. I'm like, you know, I think I may want to get a second mandolin. Could we go for one? And, you know, I just want something affordable as a backup, like an A style in Engelman. And he built this phenomenal mandolin, for me and it became my main axe. It's all I was playing now. And, and it was interesting when I started playing an A style, it was like more of a conversation piece. I was playing an A style than an F style mandolin. I bet. <laughs> and, um, and it just became my main axe. I never played the other F five. And eventually he's like, well, why don't you sell the other F five and I'll build you an F five. That sounds like this A five. 
and he did. And that, that's been my, that was about 16 years ago. And that's all I've played since. I love this mandolin. It's really uh, responsive to a light touch, but you can, you can beat on it and it doesn't bottom out at the same time. So yeah, I've been a Haydn mandolin player for all these years. And since meeting Fletcher, I, um, I also, he, you know, he's famous for his octave mandolins and he built me a mandola originally also about 16 years ago, something like that. And, um, he really does. I mean, his mandolins are phenomenal too, but he does the other mandolin family instruments, I think better than anyone. Um, this thing is so responsive and, um, it's a longer scale mandola, so it it's a little bit beefier to get around. But the tone of this thing is is it's also it's got that super responsiveness. And I've played mandolas. I had a mandola previous to that that you know it sounded fine to play leads, but it just did not. You could not play chords on it. They just sounded kind of like a chain link fence. And this mandola that Fletcher built for me, it was just like fluffy highs and and nice beefy bottom end and um then we got to the uh topic eventually of him building me a mando cello and um i'd had a couple of mando cellos previous to this but <clears throat> the mando cello he built for me blew everything away it's it's kind of like a piano it's just the bottom end is so big and often on mando cellos i've found like the bottom c string um, the open C string sounds great, but you uh, start fretting on that bottom C string and the volume difference between the two is like, you know, half the volume compared to the open C string. And he, this Mando cello is so responsive that it's it's super balanced, even when you're fretting versus the open strings. And he, uh, I mean, I'd love to have an octave mandolin from him as well, because that's actually his, what he's most known for. But this Mando cello is, is phenomenal. And I kind of have, you know, I've got a mando cello and a mandola, which pretty much covers the range of the man of the octave mandolin anyway. Right. So, right. So we really need another instrument to tour with. <laughs> right. <laughs> you always need another one. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think my new baby might disagree. <laughs> yeah. Good point. <laughs> um, yeah. The mando cello on your album is just, it sounds so good. It tracks wonderfully i mean it just sounds so impressive and it's got like a growl i love it you know the only other mando cello i actually just played one by maori oh no kidding is really beautiful mando cello as well um but yeah i've i've got a real soft spot for my mando cello yeah i bet <laughs> so i got two more questions for you here before i before you head off to rehearsal that I always try to get yep. to at the end of the podcast. And the first one is the 10 minute a day question that I ask about, like a lot of people who listen to this podcast who um, are just of all sorts of levels. And I get the most feedback from what people like you recommend doing 10 minutes a day to help them become a better player. So if you were to pick up your mandolin, you only had 10 minutes a day to pick it up for the next week. What would you work on to try and or recommend working on to focus on something to get a little bit better? Um, okay. The thing that I would, focus on i mean if it if you don't have an identified weakness mm -hmm. the thing that <clears throat> that i think everyone could benefit from is you know mandolin players often struggle or 
people often ask, how do you get to play loud? And if you look at Chris Thiele, you'll see that it's not from hitting the mandolin hard. Um, it's, it's from getting left hand, right hand synchronization. And, um, so I think a really useful thing for people to do is just on one string at a time and working one finger, um, just do a downstroke on the open string. And let's say you're on the E string with your first finger, just fretting on the upstroke on the second fret. And just to open, fretted, open, fretted, down, up, down, up. And the whole point of this is to really work on getting the moment that you're pushing down the fret to the, or the string to the fret to coincide with the moment that the pick is picking the string and getting that note to ring as long as possible till the next note so that you're getting the most clarity and ring out of each note and by doing this even as a warm-up for a couple of weeks uh, most players will discover that they get a little extra when their hands really get in sync mm -hmm. they'll be able to observe their hands moving without it taking effort and they'll start to notice this extra bright shimmery ringing of the note because they're actually getting all the clarity out of the note yeah. and then once you get that feeling you know, it's fleeting at first. So you might get it for 30 seconds, then it goes away. But then like from, you know, trying it just for 10 minutes a day, every now and like as often as possible, you'll be able to start to reconjure that. And then what I recommend, once you can conjure that feeling of that extra effortlessness, then you start taking that feeling and trying to relearn a tune that you already know and break it down into tiny phrases that you'll repeat and loop over and over again until you get that extra clarity out of it. And you'll retrain yourself to have better left hand, right hand synchronization that, um, and you know, if you do that to reconstruct four or five tunes and eventually it'll become an innate way you play, but it takes some time to focus on it. So that's, that's what I think is a really beneficial exercise. Man, that's a great one. That's a great one. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Thanks. <laughs> My pleasure. <laughs> yeah, man, absolutely. And then it is the Mandolins and Beer podcast, so I'm not sure if you're a beer drinker, but is there a favorite beer that you're enjoying right, enjoying right now if you do drink beer? I'm so sorry to say that um, I, I, I am not a big beer drinker. Yeah, I that's am no touring with a, with, a big, with a big beer drinker who <laughs> I'm starting to, like, I like beer fine, but sure. I'm just not a really big drinker. And my bass player who loves beer and he loves craft IPAs is getting me like, I get it now. I still don't drink a ton of it, but I get the craft IPAs. I think um, I'm going to embarrass myself by trying to remember the name of Hophead. That was one that stuck out with me as one of, one of the ones he's like, Oh, you really got to try this one. And I really enjoyed it. So I'm, I, you know, I'm also a little bit of a traditionalist. So when people, if I do order a beer and I don't have uh, a beer aficionado guiding me, <laughs> yeah. then I'll usually, I'll usually order a Guinness. Oh man. Yeah. It's so good. If you want, yeah, depending, it is. usually, have you had one from Ireland? I have. Yeah. Ooh. More than one from Ireland. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the best part about Ireland. <laughs> it's, it's so different. Good. 
Yeah, it's great, man. Yeah. Well, Andrew, wow, thank you so much for taking the time, for being on the podcast. Uh, great conversation. You're such a great player. And I mean, like I, I messaged you earlier, like I was kind of laid up here. And so uh, Groove was just kind of like on repeat in my uh, in my headphones as I was in and out of fever consciousness. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, well, I'm glad I could be there with you yeah, without yeah. actually exposing myself to, to influenza. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, man. <laughs> And um, uh, where can people find you online? Uh, AndrewCollinsTrio.com on Facebook, the Andrew Collins Trio, um, you know, uh, Instagram, Andrew Collins Trio Music. We're, we're very findable. <laughs> Perfect. You have to be, right? <laughs> that's, that's right. That's the goal. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Man, thank you so much for taking the time, buddy. Oh, thank you, Dan. I really appreciate it. You're doing great work. I your your podcasts are uh you know they they keep us going when we're on the road oh man thank you so much that means the world that really does like hearing that is oh, helps me helps me yeah. to keep on doing it i mean i love doing it obviously but it's just like so rewarding you know so thank you yeah you're doing great work and oh, even our bass player enjoys it really all right yeah <laughs> <laughs> awesome well tell them thank you all right well thank you dan and episode number 28 is in the books. Thank you so much to Andrew. Be sure to check out Tongue and Groove. And if you get a chance to go see Andrew live, definitely go see him. Now the world premiere. Thank you to Caleb Edwards. I teased this earlier. Caleb has got a brand new single coming out on Friday, and he was kind enough to send me an MP3 to preview it here on the Mandolins of Beer podcast. So 200 North 11th Street is a single. Uh, Caleb was a guest on one of the earlier episodes of the podcast a great guest he plays with runa he plays with lateral blue and i couldn't be happier to announce that he's got a solo album coming out so let's check out this song from caleb you guys have a great week cheers everybody the old north is gleaming in the
redemption we had a plan 